This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. We're almost at 150 episodes of Play by Playcast. I say that like there's some giant guest coming for episode 150. I, I make no promises. Episode 148 is pretty fun, though. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, however you have found this here podcast. My name, of course, is Joel Godet. This is Play by Playcast. It is the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters, hosted by Play-by-Play Broadcaster, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. You can always find the pod on social media at PXPCast. You can find me at Joel Godet, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. Our guest today is Mike Crispino. He's the first-year voice of the Connecticut Huskies, but, like, first year doesn't really adequately describe Mike Crispino because he has been in this business for a very long time at the highest of levels. Before he was at UConn, Mike Crispino was at MSG, Madison Square Garden in New York City, where he did a host of different things, from studio shows to on-site reporting to pre- and post-game coverage to straight-up play-by-play for a variety of New York sports, most notably the New York Knicks, who he called uh, through 2017. He was also uh, at ESPN in the very early years, like the formative stages, like right out the hopper, uh, was at ESPN working as like a television update desk. Like You'll hear him describe it. The best way that I could think about it was like what you would think about radio updates today, but on television, which... If you're a millennial, is really hard to envision. But I have to imagine when, you know, like, when ESPN used to go off the air, like they didn't broadcast for 24 consecutive hours. So, in that type of landscape and and, and ecosystem, yeah, I can imagine that a being very important, uh, but b also being a, a thing that happened. Uh, so we'll talk to Mike Crispino about uh, his early days at ESPN, what he learned from that experience, how he then got into local television uh, after that, which eventually carried him to MSG, which eventually on a more permanent basis uh, carried him into a play-by-play chair. So we'll go through the uh, the winding road of the career of Mike Crispino, and of course we'll do our uh, we'll play the hits uh, with with him as well in terms of uh, how he works with analysts. Um, he, he talks a lot about uh, getting good information and good stories, and what you have access to as a broadcaster that fans don't, and being able to play that uh, out on the air the right way. Uh, so good conversation with Mike Crispino. If you missed last week with Joe Fisher from Vanderbilt, uh, the archives, as always, are open and available to you. Paul Keels from Ohio State, uh, Clay Matvick from ESPN, Robert Lee from ESPN, and Rich Waltz from CBS Sports Network. Carl Ravitch are the episodes uh, immediately preceding this one. You can find them all back to episode one with Carter Blackburn. Uh, without further ado, though, we start with the the wide-ranging nature of Mike Crispino's career. He's called a lot of things, a ton of things. 
the NBA, NHL, college athletics. He's done the Olympics. He's done tennis. He's done boxing. We will dive into the boxing side of things here early. What has Mike Crispino not called? That was the first question we asked on this week's edition. Number 148 of PXPCast. Uh, what have I not broadcast in my career? I don't know. I got That's a tough question <laughs> to answer, Joel. Uh, I've done just about everything. I, I, I can't think of too many things that I've missed out on. Uh, I've never done a Super Bowl, uh, that kind of stuff. Um, college football bowl game. I don't think I've done one of those. Uh, you know, there's a few of those those final end of season events that I haven't been involved in. But the sports themselves, I think I've done pretty much every sport I enjoy uh, doing. Right, basketball, football, baseball, golf, tennis, boxing. Uh, so I've had a little bit of a, a taste of everything, and uh, that's been one of the things I'll probably look back on and say that was uh, that was a pretty good run. When all when all is said and done, you a boxing aficionado, or is that one of those things where that get gets put on your plate and you say, "All right, we'll we'll learn this one and see how this goes." Well, you know, I'm not really an aficionado, but I do appreciate the sport, and I got to work for Showtime uh, for uh, several events a couple years ago, a few years ago, and uh, I really learned a lot more about the inside business of boxing, and uh, and I really got to, to respect the boxers themselves and what they had to do to to get to where they were. Because I was involved in Showbox, which is that preliminary stage for boxers who were trying to get to championship level. And so we met a lot of uh, boxers who were <clears throat> on the way up, who had talent and, you know, were developing their skills and wanted to be great. And they were sacrificing so much to get there, you know, for very little money. There wasn't much prize money in that for, for show box competitors. So I got to really appreciate that sport and, uh, I wouldn't say an aficionado, but I, I really have a lot of respect, <clears throat> excuse me, for the guys who were involved in boxing, guys and girls who were in boxing. It was one of those things I was curious because I actually got asked a few weeks ago, someone came to me with a with a combat sport opportunity, and I sat there and I thought, I was like, this would be really cool, but at that level, I feel like I would have been way too overexposed in that type of situation and setting, and it was one of those kind of new new things in my arsenal that would have been cool, but at the same time is more niche. And I feel like fans of it really know, and they can kind of tell when you're trying to make your way through it. Can't they? I agree with that. <clears throat> I was fortunate when I was at MSG, we used to do the golden gloves and I was on that show for a few different seasons. So I got a um, tremendous experience with that in terms of um, doing all levels of amateur boxing and going way back to my career in Boston and even in Hartford before that, there was always a boxing, you know, segment of the, of the population that was promoting boxing. And I always ended up in it somehow. So I was fortunate to have had experience with amateur fights in Boston, amateur fights in Hartford, covering pro fights. Uh, we had, we had Marlon Starling, who was a champion in, in Hartford area. And we followed him during his career. So I was around a lot of his fights and uh, Boston, as I said, as well, some of these amateur fights in very small loca locations where you really learn the game. So I was lucky. I got to do that stuff. And I agree with you. I, I am very, I have tre tremendous trepidation about taking on stuff like combat sports, uh, UFC, <clears throat> et cetera, because I, I am not well-schooled in it. And I'm, I'm not a fan of it. 
that's the other thing. I mean, I think you agree, might, might agree with this. I, I, I feel like if you're a fan of a sport, whatever it may be, you're going to be better at it, yep. right? You're, yep. If you play golf, I play golf, I play tennis, I played football, I played basketball, I played baseball. So all those sports, I have a unique uh, sense of because I was actually on the field doing stuff, playing the game. And I feel like a lot of the people who are in our end of the business, when I talk to them, I, I feel like they don't have never really done that. They, they have all the mechanics. There's a lot of talented people doing play-by-play work. There's so many of them around the country. I run into them all the time, and I, I hear what they do, and I appreciate what they do. But I always feel like you're better off if you had some kind of involvement, whether it's uh, playing the sport or coaching the sport. Or in my case, I also officiate. I officiate basketball and, uh, and baseball. I'm part of baseball on the amateur level, high school level. I think that gives me another unique perspective of what is going on on the court or on the field while we're watching games and calling games. So I just feel like being involved on that, you know, serious level where you're actually a participant in some way, shape or form is a real value to people who are doing play by play work. Especially in a day and age, I feel like there was a point in time as a broadcaster where we all get caught in even if it's just second-guessing yourself with what exactly is being called on the field right now. That's always a nice kind of ace in the hole to have, too. Um, yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. When I first, when I wasn't officiating, I've been officiating for like 10 years uh, in basketball and in, uh, in baseball. And before that, I can honestly say I was a real pain on air about officials' calls. <laughs> I was constantly questioning them, constantly. And now that I, I think about it, that was foolish because – if you have never done those things and you've never tried to officiate a basketball game, you have no idea how tough that is, how hard that is, how almost every play could be 50-50 one way or another. So since I've done that these last 10 years, when I broadcast a basketball game, like my partner, Wayne Norman, is like 40 years in the business as an analyst uh, for basketball, football, and baseball, and then he's done a lot of other sports too. He likes to refer to me uh, questions about things that we see, right, that an official may or may not do. And, and it helps us, I think, to do a better broadcast because I'm more informed now. I was not informed, and I was questioning people constantly. And that's that's kind of a, in the overall picture of things, it's, it's kind of an amateur way to do things. Yeah. I mean, if you're sitting there doing an important game for Ball State or an important game for UConn, and you're sitting there talking about the officials or missing this and missing that, and that's all you're talking about, that's just amateur stuff. I I just don't think it's fair to do. And I, and I think the fans, you know, they can argue about stuff like that. That's not our job. You know, to me, that's not our job. Uh, you also, early in your career, in addition to all of uh, the things you've seen and done, you worked at early ESPN, did you not? <laughs> yes, I did. Yes, I did. What was it like when it was... I, first off, I mean, describe what it looked like. Was it still just like a couple of buildings in a swamp when you were there, or, or how did it evolve at that point? Well, I got I got hired there off uh, a tape I had sent to uh, a friend of mine who had worked at CPTV, Connecticut Public Television, in Hartford. She went to work at ESPN in 79, I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 78, something like that. So they, they had no idea what they were doing. They were just at the very beginning of trying to figure out what should we do. Like Originally, you know how ESPN began. There were a couple of guys who wanted to have 
UConn basketball games broadcast from the road somewhere yep. back to the Hartford area, right? So they said, well, now there's these satellites up there. If we can get a signal up to those satellites, we can get that signal back down to us, and we can put that out. And maybe, you know, people want to watch that. So that's the very beginning of it. And so when I went there, they had four or five play, uh, anchors types who had been hired, uh, Chris Berman, uh, trying to think of the other guys. Tom Meese was in the office there. Uh, George Grand, um, and uh, Greg Gumble, and a couple other guys. There was like five of us. I walked in that office, and and those guys were all experienced. They had been in the business of television five years, ten years, so they had taken the shot. I think Bob Lee was there too. So they had taken the risk of, okay, we'll go up there. That's a sports network. That sounds interesting. That sounds different than what we're doing. And so we're all sitting around in a room, and, and no one had any idea what we're going to do. And uh, Bill Fitz was, was the guy. <laughs> Bill Fitz was the guy that hired me. And another guy, Jimmy Myers, who was working in Boston, and we were going to do, like, updates. He said, okay, we're going to do, you know, every 15 minutes we're going to come on the air during the day and we're going to give little blurbs about what's going on in sports so you know very rudimentary stuff no prompters no uh, no personnel in the studio it's just the camera and us so um now the other guys were more experienced obviously so i was uh i was inexperienced completely so i had done basically radio i had done little or no television at all so um, I was in there, started to, to do the job. I was maybe there for six months, way over my head. It was very uncomfortable, I got to say. No prompter and just kind of going off notes. Now, if I had to do that 10 years later, I would have been fine. It would have been easy because I had experience doing it. Mm. But when you have no experience and you're about to do something like that and you realize that there could be actually people watching this, <laughs> it's, it's a little intimidating. So anyway, I lasted for six months doing that. But that got me a job in the local uh, NBC affiliate, you know, literally 10 miles down the road. And that's that's where I kind of started my TV career. But that ESPN was one building. It was one office. It was one. I remember guys, all five, six of us sitting around desks looking at each other like in a space as big as your living room. You know, that kind of stuff. That's what it was. Describe that discomfort of being... Uh, similar to what we talked about a couple minutes ago in the boxing standpoint, like being exposed on a, on a national level, doing something that you were still, still fairly new to um, and what that taught you and, and how you grew from that experience. Well, it was, it was nerve wracking. Um, at the end of the day, I would walk out of there feeling like, Oh my God, I hope, I hope no one really saw that because I would fumble, stumble, uh, you know, be glanced, looking down at my papers all the time. It, it was very rudimentary stuff. And the other guys who were working in there, like I said, had more experience. So they had been on camera and, and done some work. Maybe a couple of them had been in, you know, uh, New Jersey public television, or I think Berman had worked in Providence or something like that. He, a couple of them had been on the air for a bit. So they had the experience. Uh, Greg Gumble had more experience. I think he'd been in New York on one of the stations. So uh, it was very nerve wracking. I'll tell you what. And, and it was well, I think what it taught me more than anything else is, is how to deal with performance anxiety because even to this day, you start a broadcast, even if it's something you know backwards and forwards, there's got to be a little nervousness because you don't know what's going to happen, right? You don't know what's going to happen in that game, you know, whether someone could get, 
you know, seriously injured or something really bad could happen or something really exhilarating might happen. So you have to be prepared in the back of your mind mentally for just about anything. So I think that's what that taught me. It taught me that you're not always going to be comfortable sitting there talking like I'm talking to you right now, right? Mm-hmm. We can sit, we can sit here and talk for hours about, you know, what we do because we're immersed in it, we're absorbed in it, we're experienced with it. But when you're not, you have no idea where you're going next. So you say to yourself, well, well what am I, <laughs> where do I go from here? After I tell you that the Red Sox just lost to the Yankees and that, you know, uh, the Giants are starting training camp, uh, where am I going? I, I don't know. I don't have any point of reference is what I'm saying uh, at that time. Now you do. So I think it taught me that you're going to have performance anxiety. You're going to be, you're going to be, ner- it's going to be nerve wracking. You're not going to know what you're going to have to say in the next five minutes. You might not know what you're going to have to say in the next 30 seconds. So it's really a challenge mentally to be able to, um, to overcome that and do well with it, right? Now, that my first six months at ESPN, I did not do well at. I can, I can honestly say that I developed a little bit of on-camera skill and a little bit of, of verbal, you know, what's the word I'm thinking of, you know, learning how to take little dance steps verbally to get around stuff and get to another subject smoothly, right? So I learned a couple of things, and that helped me when I went to the NBC affiliate because then I went to do weekend sports there, and uh, at least I was serviceable, right? They kept me around for another year or so until the main anchor eventually went to work in Boston, and, and I ended up you know, filling in for him and eventually taking over that job. But I, I wouldn't have been able to do that if I hadn't done you know, six months at ESPN, a, a year on the weekend sports desk with uh, with NBC's uh, affiliate in Hartford. So it start, you know, experience starts to to build up, and you you learn certain mechanisms to get through what you have to do in a particular uh, format, whatever you're doing, whether you're hosting, you know, a pregame show, or you're doing a news uh, sports news segment, or you're doing a um, you know location play by play work. You just have to learn as you go, almost. So at that point, you're doing a ton of television, and I, I, I want to build off the, the idea of not necessarily knowing what comes next for you, uh, because I, I, I saw an interview you had done where you had said you didn't have a lot of dreams, it was more of a day-to-day, like it's a constant audition, and I just want to keep, keep going with where I'm at. Um, when did play-by-play come into the picture for you, and when did your mind kind of go to, I'd like to do some live games as opposed to being in front of the camera all the time and being in the studio and, and covering events in that fashion? Uh, I would say <clears throat> probably about, uh, what, what are we, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20, 20 years ago, something like that. I was at MSG. I was a staff announcer. So we did uh, what we had was a sports desk, which was a, a nightly show, half-hour show, and I would do a, a lot of those, anchor those, and then, uh, as a staff guy, we acquired, or rather, MSG acquired Fox Sports regionally in that area. And so they put Islanders, Devils, Nets on, uh, on our air, basically, MSG's air. So we needed people to go out and host pregame shows because we were doing pregame shows for every one of those teams. <clears throat> and for a couple of years, I was doing the pregame show. This, to me, is ridiculous now that I think about it. But, you know, when you're on staff, they tell you what to do and you go do it. 
uh, I was hosting the Islanders. Then I was going over. I was hosting the Devils. And then I was hosting uh, the Nets. And so I was hosting all this stuff on location now instead of the studio because that's where we did our hosting for those franchises because we didn't have enough studio space to do uh, the Knicks and the Rangers and the Islanders and the Devils and the Nets. Uh, and, of course, the Yankees in the summertime. But So that was really – it was kind of a you know necessity, the mother of invention in, in a sense because I then had to go out on location and start hosting these shows again – this is, you know, 15 years or so into my career where I'm, now I'm comfortable. I can do an entire half hour pregame show with no teleprompter, just off notes, just talk, just interview people, go from, you know, transition from one thing to another, uh, you know, voiceover intros into tapes and all that stuff and just keep on going and go out on the rink and, and do a sideline piece with a skater and then come back in the studio and, and redo uh, some, you know, NHL scoreboard stuff and all those things start to develop right so i'm on location for two or three years and i'm running like a, a maniac back and forth between all those arenas and then we started doing we needed to do that on the road and so i was doing three games post games for those franchises at home and on the road so it sounds crazy but i would go from city to city to city and commercially because we weren't really chartering with the teams then and catch up to them I would oftentimes, you know, fly from one city at seven in the morning, get to the morning skate at like 10 in the morning in Montreal, let's say, uh, do that morning skate, talk to players, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Then, then talk to the producer, do a pregame show, you know, format, and then come back to the arena and do the shows a pre and post game and the intermissions and then the half times for basketball. So there was two or three years there was intense. It was really intense. It was a, it was a major major challenge because you just never caught up to sleep or, you know, from, from September to May, you were just going the whole time with several franchises. So it put me on location for all those franchises and I start to get to know all the teams and the players and the, and the, you know, GMs and the coaches and, and, um, and obviously the play by play guys, we work together with them. <clears throat> and that's when I started to get interested in it because I thought, you know, it's great to be talking about the game before and during intermissions and at halftime and, and the post game, but I'd rather be doing it on the game itself. That seems to be like more, I don't know if it was interesting or more challenging. It was, you sort of look for things that challenge you as time goes on because you don't want to get in a rut. You know, you don't want to get to the point where you, where it becomes, uh, de facto what you do. You know what I mean? You want, you want something, that pushes you a little bit. And that's what was going on in my mind. Eventually I started filling in on the nets for play by play when I and Eagle was out. Uh, and then I do hockey when, uh, you know, Sam Rosen was doing football for Fox. And then I would do uh, hockey for the Islanders if Howie Rose had to start doing, you know, Mets baseball in the spring. So I was kind of the go-to guy because I was a staff guy. It was easy for them just to go, oh, we got a guy, let's send him there. And then, and every time they sent me to do these things, I didn't mess it up so they could trust me. And that was that was kind of the beginning of doing play-by-play work. And I enjoyed it because, again, it's the, it's the, uh, it's the ultimate challenge because you're, you're talking about, you know, sports events as they happen, right, in the moment. So there's that, uh, there's that uh, excitement about that, I think, and the challenge of it that uh, 
that I really appreciated. And so I've been doing that primarily for the last, I don't know, 15 years or so, something like maybe 20, something like that. Where'd you learn how to call a game? Like once you got thrown into the fire, um, how'd you hone that craft? Um, you know what? I try. I think I. I would say I try. I try to listen to my analysts a lot. I, I leaned on my analysts a lot because I always feel like in television, for instance, this is the difference, right, between television and radio. In television, you have all the pictures, and yes, I've got to identify the players in hockey, particularly because there's so much going on. But I think it's an analyst sport. I think in television, it's really about the analysts, how much they bring, what they tell you about what actually happened, because the fan who sits at home can see everything that happened. They really can. They they don't need me to tell them that Ovechkin just took that shot. You know what I'm saying? It's so yeah, it's important. But uh, I I used to lean on my analysts, and I had some grab. I I worked with John Davidson. I worked with uh, you know Walt Frazier, John Andres, guys like that who were just you know, they were they were really good at what they did. So that really that helped me quite a bit. Uh, the play by play thing, I think really honing your skills comes even more on radio because you've got to really describe what's happening everywhere on the court or on the rink or on the football field or in the baseball stadium. So that's the uh, <clears throat> to me that's the real challenge. Radio play by play is a real challenge. I've been doing more of that in the last uh I don't know, I would say 10 years I've been doing more radio. I started doing St. John's in, in New York, and then I was doing the Knicks, filling in for them for a bit, and then I started doing their games, you know, year-round uh, throughout the schedule. So uh, <clears throat> that was a real challenge. I mean, radio is is really describing what's happening. And, and I listen to a lot of radio because I drive a lot. I lived in Connecticut for all those years. I worked in New York and <clears throat> commuted to New York hour and a half, two hours. So... You know, I get out of a game, a Nick game, it's like 1030, let's say. I drive home. I don't get home until midnight at least. And, uh, and that's what I would do. I'd listen to all the West Coast games and the NBA or if it was in the spring baseball games or uh, in the fall football games, whatever it may be. Um, so I listen to a lot of radio. So I, I have a real sense of what works for me when I listen to radio as a fan because I'm a fan. And, I mean, I'm sure you have the same experience, right? If you're not a fan of a sport, I don't know how you would know what to do. You know what I'm saying? You have to know what a fan is interested in, what gets them involved, what gets them excited about what's happening. If you don't call it correctly, if you don't tell them what's, hap- what's just happened there, why the coach is stomping around on the sideline, why the official is shouting at, at uh, the, the, bas- the head basketball coach or the two coaches who are fighting on the sideline or something, you know, you can't. You can't get a fan, a listener excited unless you can really describe what's going on. What else is important to you in that regard? Like, what stands out to you if you're, <clears throat> if you're driving home on those nights back to Connecticut? Um, that's not just good, but is is great. That next level guy that you just have to tune into every time. I think it's the guys that can that can uh, <clears throat> describe the excitement of what's going on inside that arena, and describe what a player has done to create that excitement like for instance if it's basketball how does uh, Steph Curry get open what kind of a stutter step move did he just make in a step back or James Harden driving to the basket and, and uh, shouldering off the defender and getting a scoop shot that goes in and he gets fouled every time <clears throat> excuse me so 
it's it's describing what the greatness is and how they're doing it. You know, if someone rises up above, like a Adetta Kumpo rises up from the foul line and somehow gets to the rim and throws it down, that's got to be described in such a way that the fan can, can say to themselves, wow, I can't believe he just did that, even though I didn't see it. They didn't see it, but I just said, Adetta Kumpo took off from two feet behind the foul line, took one step, and threw it down with his right hand over a defender who actually hacked him in the same process. Think about it, you know, and, and if you're sitting there listening to that, you say to yourself, wow, I wish I had seen that. That was pretty cool. Uh, so those are the things that you have to do uh, in, in football. It's, it's a it's a it's a juke move that a running back makes that that takes a you know linebacker out of his shoes or there's a leaping catch by a receiver that's, you know, ridiculous. He goes up eight feet off the ground and somehow comes down with a football. I mean. There's things like that that I, I think, uh, as a listener, you need to hear because you, you need to know how good that was, what, how great was it. Maybe not every play is great. Maybe you know, some plays are like a dive-off tackle and the man makes four yards, and, and now it's third and six, you know what I'm saying? But it's when, the, when someone does something special um, on any field or any rink, you got to be able to tell people what, what he actually did there because that's what makes this thing special. That's what makes it unique. You said you learned a lot from analysts early on as well. What are your best practices for getting the most out of the person sitting next to you? Um, and, and the approach to having the best show between the two of you as opposed to <laughs> just you having a good show or them having a good show? Well, I want to make the analyst feel like he's really important, or she, whoever it is. I did a lot of Liberty games over the years, and I worked, you know, Doris Burke for a bit, and uh, some other people, Roz Gold on Wood A there. She's now on TNT. And, you know, they were all basically rookies when when I started working with them because I was at MSG for 15 years, and we started doing Liberty games. And, you know, Mike Breen did the Liberty before me, and then uh, Gus Johnson, and I did it. Um, you, you want to make, especially if, it, if they're a rookie or a young analyst, <clears throat> you want to make them feel important. You want to make them feel what they're saying is very valuable. And you want to make it into a conversation. I've always felt that. I mean, I had a great rapport with uh, <clears throat> like a Bill Raftery with the Nets and uh, Jim Spinarco, guys like that. But that's because we were just, you know, we could talk about stuff. And that was easy. It's the ones where you you got someone who's a rookie, like I think of Julianne Vianney, <clears throat> excuse me, she came to do the Liberty a, a couple of years ago when I was doing it and oh, yeah. she had never, she had never done anything. And so she was really, you know, cliche written and, and the stuff she was saying was, uh, I get it. She was trying to do the mechanics of the job. And, and so she's what right, I tried to right do, now, yeah. yeah, she does, she does. So she's got the mechanics down. She's got a feel or he's got a feel like what he's got to say or she's got to say next is really valuable to what the overall picture of this thing is. And sometimes I like to ask questions. I probably something, maybe I overdo it once in a while. I don't know. Like I know with, with, with Clyde, uh, we would do, you know, probably 15 games a year or something like that when Breen was out and with Clyde, we would spend a lot of time because I was, I mean, I was a huge fan of his growing up, blah, blah, blah. So I had a lot of history with him, and then we could talk basketball. We would talk basketball all the time on the charters, hotels, wherever we went out to dinner, and we you know, we had similar philosophies about basketball, right? How it you know needs to be played successfully, 
So when we got in the game situation, we could talk about that. It was easy. It was like we were having a conversation at dinner. So that's what I would try to do. I would try to ask kind of, you know, like sort of uh, dumb fan questions like, Clyde, why is that happening? Why is that? Why did that just happen? That should not happen. Am I correct? And he would go off and talk about, you know, why uh, the defenders should never guard a guy on one side or the other if he's right-handed. So um, those are the kind of things you, you do when you're trying to get your analysts to elevate uh, their level because there's, there's so many good ones. I mean, I'm John Davis was tremendous in hockey. He taught me a lot about hockey. Uh, Chico Resch, when he did the Devils, <clears throat> Butch Goring on the Islanders, um, guys like that, you know, they, they, uh, they know the game. <clears throat> so you got to get them to be able to communicate their knowledge in an interesting way to the fans who are watching the game. So if I can act like a fan to some degree and act like a kind of an informed colleague of his, that helps him or her be able to really open up and have some space to stretch out and, and really inform people. What's it like doing all of that under the New York microscope um, and, and having those types of eyes on you night in and night out? Well, after a while, it doesn't, it's not a, a factor. It's, it's like going to work, really. So, um, but on the other hand, every time you go on the air, you probably know this, you're, uh, you know, you're, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, and that's, it's not an experiment, but it's, uh, it's a challenge. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know. You want to make sure you don't say something dumb. You don't want to say something that's incorrect. Uh, <clears throat> you just don't know what's going to happen. So there's that intrigue that you're faced with every night. Uh, how am I going to make this game between the Pistons and the Knicks when the Knicks are, you know, 16 and 60? How am I going to make that interesting? And so uh, that's the challenge of it. Uh, and so you don't have time to think about it, really. Uh, and plus, I did it for so long that, that uh, <clears throat> it's just like uh, if I, it doesn't matter if I'm doing UConn's football team or uh, the New York Knicks playing LeBron James and the Cavaliers at the Garden. There's not that much different, really. Uh, and you shouldn't treat it that much different. You know what I'm saying? You should, you should give both events uh, – uh, certainly a, 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 the very same effort and certainly the same sense of, of theatrics. You know what I mean? That you might, you might need to get the, the uh, audience engaged. Well, describe what that is a little bit. And, and when you talk about a 16-60 and 60 Knicks team, how do I make that interesting on any <laughs> given night? How do you make that interesting on any given night? <clears throat> well, I would say that in that, that one season that I – I've had two terrible, terrible seasons. One was the Knicks winning 17 games, losing 65 <clears throat> under Derek Fisher. And the other one was UConn this year, 1-11, and and not competing in about eight of the games. So um, I think what you end up doing is crystallizing the, uh, the moments in time. So let's say, for instance, UConn's uh, down 30-10, to 10, uh, and it's the second quarter. And um, UConn's quarterback, uh, David Vindell, has have made a couple of nice runs and they've got a couple of first downs. You stay right in that moment. Mm. So you, you get excited about what he just did. Uh, and you almost forget about the score. You, I mean, you have to because if you start repeating, well, they're down 30 to 10, but, but here's a field goal. Nah, <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. You know, the, the listener, who, whoever's listening to that is not, you know, they're probably disgusted or whatever. 
but so you got to find something positive that's happening. And, you know, with the Knicks when they won 17 games, you know, they had probably a couple of two or three players that were improving and getting, you know, valuable time. And, and you talk about the future uh, with them, uh, young guys who were uh, just like this year for them. They won 17 games and, and most nights, uh, you know, they lost 18 straight games at home. You know, I wasn't doing their games, but I watched a few of them. And as a competitive fan, hoping the team wins, you, you would get completely discouraged. But as a broadcaster, you've got to talk about whatever positive may come from it. Like Alonzo Trier scores 18 that night, makes, you know, eight out of 12 field goals. You got to say, well, he's had a pretty good night tonight. You know, here's a guy that, that no one drafted, and he's got he's got talent, and he certainly belongs in the NBA. And you kind of focus on the things they do well, <clears throat> and not the overall result. Because if you're talking about the overall results, you're pretty discouraged as an announcer in the second quarter because you can see what's going to happen. Mm. You know, uh, teams are coming in, they're blowing the Knicks out. Uh, that year we lost 65 games there. I mean, they're blowing the Knicks out. In fact, the guys I worked for that year were very complimentary to me that that I kept it going, you know, that I kept being positive on some level when anybody who was watching their games was saying, oh, my God, they're losing again. This is terrible. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is awful. How are we going to get through this season? This is a lottery team. They just can't beat anybody. That's the fans' take, but we can't be like that. We've got to, we've got to stay in the moment, right? We've got to, we've got to say – you know, so-and-so just made a great drive and just showed how athletic he actually is. You know what I mean? That mm-hmm. kind of stuff. What are the things that you, even now at this point in your career, several decades into doing this and calling games, um, what do you find yourself thinking about when you're doing a game in terms of this is something I I like to still work on or this is something that I still have to think about that might give me trouble here and there or this is how I'm evolving as a broadcaster? Um, what are those types of things even at this point? Well, I think the thing that gets keeps me going is, and someone said this to me years ago, I can't remember who it was, they just said, look, sports is the ultimate uh, live drama. You don't know what's going to happen that day. Something could happen, right? Carmelo Anthony could score 60 points one night. The team is going nowhere. Who cares? But he scores 60 and sets a record in that building. Something like that could happen in any given moment. I mean, I could be doing a UConn baseball game. Uh, they played Rhode Island yesterday, and someone might throw a no-hitter. Yeah. Something like that could happen. So you always keep that in the back of your mind. Something unbelievable could happen. I remember I was doing a radio game for the Knicks, filling in. Doris Burke was with me, and the Knicks were playing. I can't even remember who it was. <laughs> I had never seen this, but they had point one on the clock. <laughs> Excuse me, and they were down one. And they inbounded the ball from midcourt, and they threw it up above the rim, and David Lee tipped it in, and they won the game. No one thought that could happen. It was silly how it happened. And it shocked everybody, and the crowd went crazy. That's the kind of stuff that happens. Every night, something happens that you say, I never saw that before. I've never seen that. So that's what drives me, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's UConn playing Tulsa in basketball in March, you know, with a 15-15 and record. I don't know. Someone might throw in a half-court shot. Uh, <clears throat> I think it was Wichita State this year. You know, UConn was struggling in basketball. Yep. They're 500. Wichita wasn't very good at the time. And uh, Runner down UConn, the side of the lane. Yeah, exactly. 
uh, one of the one of the Wichita guys got a chance to run down the court with eight seconds left and put one up to win the ball game, and that was a catalyst to their season. That got them got them really rolling. And Wichita State ended up in the NIT and nearly won that. So that's what I'm saying. You don't know. It, it's a it's an odd cold night in the in Wichita, Kansas, where UConn is just struggling, you know, just to stay relevant. And then they play a great game, and then they get burned on a, on a last second shot like that, and. Uh, so you never know what, what's, what's going to happen. And, and I, I think that keeps you – like I'm thinking about this in, in relation to doing baseball right now. <clears throat> you know, college baseball northeast, it's not, you know, it, it's not what it is in the southeast or the SEC or the ACC, but UConn's got a really good program. And over the last, uh, I think, nine years, they've gone to five NCAA tournaments. They're good. So they have to play under tough conditions. So I appreciate that about them. So when I come to do a game, I give them the best I have. I, I want to. I treat them like they're going to the College World Series, and they've done that before. Uh, but you know, it's a it's a cold day in, in mid-April, wind blowing, gray, going to rain. We're doing the game. The team's out there playing. You know, you got to give everything you have because uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's all that matters that day. That's all that matters. Mike, if people want to uh, find you or listen to UConn games or UConn content or find you on social media, uh, how do they track you down? Well, the iHeartMedia app, uh, UConn IMG, has all our games. So that's the best way if you're, if you're not local. If you're local in Connecticut, it's uh, 97.9 ESPN in Hartford. Uh, I do tweet some stuff, Mike Crispino. At, uh, at Mike Crispino, so I do – I have a lot of things to tweet. Tweeting is funny to me. I don't know what you think <laughs> about it, but uh, I, I did – I always use it when I see something I don't care for in sports or I like. Like last night, I was watching the Warriors, right? <laughs> and uh, they're playing uh, <clears throat> the Clippers, and I happened to be watching them the first half, and I look at the scoreboard and I say to myself, wait a minute, it says 51-50. Then I look at the clock. It says eight minutes and 30 seconds left in the second quarter. Now, I said to myself, wait a minute. So these two teams just scored 101 points, literally, in 16 minutes. You think about that. That's a lot of points. That's scoring two buckets each every minute with a 24-second shot clock. I mean, where has the defense gone? Nowhere. Everyone just can fire from anywhere and score from anywhere. So, I just tweeted about that. I said, well, defense is obsolete in this series. <laughs> but those are the kind of things that, that kind of interest me. You know, when you see things that are just out of this, out of this world, crazy different. And uh, so I do tweet stuff. I don't use Facebook much. I don't use Instagram much. My partner, Wayne Norman, likes to use it. He takes a lot of photos of us on the road and stuff. I don't know. What kind of stuff do you use? I'm curious. Um, I'm, a big, I'm a big Twitter guy, sometimes to my detriment. Um, I'm a big Instagram guy though. Like I'm a, I'm a huge picture of where I'm at right now. Like here's, here's a waterfall slash here's a football field slash here's me on a court with a microphone pregame. I don't know why uh-huh. people find that interesting. Um, but, but, but it's a uh, life documented, I guess. I guess. Yeah. So Twitter, now when you use Twitter, <laughs> how much of it do you use for news? That's my real question. Like how much do I get from it? Yeah, like because I, I talk to people who use and find news on Twitter all the time, and I say to myself, <clears throat> "Are you sure that's news? I'm not sure." Yeah, I mean, I, I use it that way. Um, 
but it's more like that all depends because you can choose your own news that way. So you have to you have to you have to make sure you've got a broadened uh, scope of of what you're looking for. You know what I mean? Yeah. For instance, give me a for instance on that. Say you wanted to find out something uh, about uh, the Giants drafting in uh, uh, the NFL draft. Well, so what would you well, do? So there's a couple ways to do it. I mean, like the the, the first one is. Like I use, I I, follow, I try to follow a broad scope of people so that like just first and foremost when I open it I'm getting presented with a lot of different things from a lot of different places. Um, right. But then if mm-hmm. like for the example that you put forward like it's great that way because it's usually the quickest updated thing. So this weekend's a great example. If I'm trying to find out who the Giants draft and I just pull up Twitter I'll search Giants draft. Um, okay. And like mm-hmm. that would and and it, that will give me like within seconds who a draft pick is as opposed to if I go Google it where maybe something's not necessarily posted to an article yet. Um, right. So from that and can you trust, can I, you trust? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, you have to be careful because obviously anybody can post anything. So you have to, you have to see where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I use it a lot from a, a sports standpoint too, where especially from like, even from a ball state standpoint, like if I'm doing a men's game, sometimes the first thing I'll do is I'll open up Twitter and I'll pull, I'll try to find the women's score as opposed to going mm-hmm. through other routes. Or if I need other news from other, other games that are going on in the conference, like if I look at a box score and I see a guy from Ohio didn't play, I'll go to Twitter and search, you know, John Smith, Ohio, and see what pops up. And it might say okay. John Smith hurt his ankle in the second quarter. Um, so it's good for me from that standpoint, too. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> so this, uh, listen, that's the other thing people ask me a lot. Well, how do you know all these things? How do you, you know, how can you go from one sport to the other? And and honestly, it's a good question. You know, when I, yeah, when I first started doing this, you know, going back a bunch of years, it was way different. I mean, now the sources of information are immense. I mean, there's just no. It's almost like you can do too much. And I hear this, it's one of the complaints I have about people in, in my business. When I listen to games, I can tell which, which people <clears throat> spend a lot of time on websites looking for information. Some of it's good, and research is good, background's good. But I always feel like, like here's an example. Yesterday, right, I go to the, the baseball field. I talk to, I'm trying to think now, maybe, I want to say three players and one coach at the batting cage, okay? Now, I used every one of those conversations in the broadcast, and I feel like there's not enough of that. I feel like not enough of people like us do enough talking to people who are actually participating to be able to give a fan a perspective that they can't get from a website. Because fans are really good at looking stuff up too, right? Yeah, they're really good. They're really good at looking up what goes on with Ball State's point guard. I don't know, uh, UConn's, uh, you know, uh, power forward. They can look that stuff up. They kind of don't need me to do it in, in a sense. But how about I went to practice? I talked to Josh Carlton, the big man for UConn. First half of the year, low numbers, no production. Second half of the year, coming on strong. Okay. I talk to the guy. I find out what's going on. How come? Why? Why are you all of a sudden, you know, being aggressive and scoring and rebounding better? And You know what I'm saying? So that's what we can bring that other people can't bring. And I don't hear that enough. I honestly don't. 
I hear a lot of people doing play-by-play work as if they just flew in, landed, opened up some websites, got the information, gave you the background, and then repeated it on the air. And to me, uh, I'm listening to a broadcast. I want to hear something that I don't know about Ball State center fielder. I don't know that. I don't know that that guy you know, was a lacrosse player. He was on the golf team in high school, that kind of stuff. And, and, and something about him in golf, let's say, I mean, I'm getting off the track here, but something about him in golf that may help him in baseball, right? Those are the kind of things that, that I think nobody else gets except us. If we do it right, um, like yesterday, UConn, in a, in a dugout for the game, they, they moved uh, one of their outfielders from the, the four slot and let him off. And I didn't know this, but he said, I said, this is unusual. You're going to be leading off for second game in a row. He goes, it's not really. I used to lead off a lot last year. And I'm going, okay. I wasn't there last year, so I used that in the game. I said, here's a guy suddenly leading off and has no problem with it because he did a lot of it last year. What's he do? He doubles and singles his first two at-bats. So if I didn't talk to him about that and get that, you know, and, and bring that to the broadcast, folks would say, it's just a, it's another level you can go to is what I'm trying to say. You know what I mean? Another level that someone doesn't know. Like the guy listening or the girl listening to the game, they have no idea that, like, for instance, Anthony Prado, shortstop UConn, BP, he's sitting a bat, using a bat, sounds like wood. And I go, why does that bat sound like wood? He goes, it's broken. (laughs) He goes, I use it anyway because I like the sound of it. I'm like, wow. And and he goes, "And and I use wood all through high school because I played in Staten Island, and, and city schools had to use wood. And I'm like, wow, I did not know that. So that's why the guy is so comfortable swinging a bat that feels like wood. And, you know, all summer he plays in the Cape in those leagues like that, and he uses wood, and he does fine because he's used to doing it. He's been hitting with wood since he was in high school. That's marvelous. So, yeah, those are the kind of things that someone picks that up, and they listen, and they go, oh, my God, I didn't know Anthony Prado even – you know, we played on Staten Island. You know, they had baseball fields there. <laughs> but, you know, he was a wood bat guy. So uh, it's just interesting stuff that you can't, I mean, you and I can come up with this stuff because we're talking to these people. And I, I feel like a lot of people in our business, they just show up, sit down, put a suit on, start talking, you know, look at the stat monitor and we're, let's go. I mean, I don't know. I think there's so much more to, that's the interesting part of what I'm doing now, getting to know college athletes again on a more regular basis, what drives them, what their life is like, what their practice is like, what their relationship with the coach is like, all those things that, uh, you know, they're deeper. They go a little deeper than, oh, the guy's seven for his last 15, you know, whatever, on the road or something. Yeah, that's great, but, you know, can you tell me why the guy swings the bat like that on the road? He likes being on the road? I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't like hitting in his own home ballpark for some reason. You know what I mean? Let me travel down that road with you real quick here, too, um, because how do you – I agree with you. Like, I'm, I'm huge on that type of information, um, but sometimes I watch my own stuff back or listen to my own stuff back, and it can be to my detriment in that y- you have to learn how and when and where to use it appropriately. Uh, so how have you managed it, and, and I'm sure it's different radio and television um, from your past, but how do you – decide all right this is what and baseball is different because you have more time but basketball mm-hmm. football where it's going so quickly what gets used when and where and most effectively i think if it relates to something in the game or the overall picture of the game like for instance in baseball yesterday uconn 
on the road, 21 straight games to start their year because the weather's not good here, <clears throat> did really well. Then they come home, and they, you figure a lot of home games. They should really take advantage of this and, and really boost their record up. But they've struggled. They've been kind of, I think they've been 8-4 and four or something these last 12 games at home. And I talked to the pitching coach about it. <clears throat> Josh McDonald, he says, uh, and I, unbeknownst to me, I didn't even think of this. He says, this happens every year to us. We go on the road, we, we play well, and then we get back and we, we fall into this malaise almost because I think it's the travel. We're like, we don't realize how much the travel took out of us in the first eight weeks of the season. And we get back and we're playing in colder weather, can't get loose, can't get stretched out. So we are, whatever skill levels we've developed in the opening 22 games or whatever on the road, we have to, you know, we're kind of going backwards in time and then the travel wears us down and we always end up with this kind of mediocre homestand when we get back. So I, I used that on the air because I, I quoted, you know, their record was seven and four before yesterday at home after starting out really well, they were 22nd in the country. And I said, talking to the pitching coach, he was saying that this happens to them every year. All the good teams they've had have had this similar rut in April where they just don't perform that well. And they have to scramble around and get on a roll late in the season to, to push for the NCAA tournament. So, I mean, Having said that, people who were kind of listening to the game might have said, "Well, why, what's UConn? They're so they're not playing well. What's going on with them?" Mm. I thought they were good. I thought they were a good team. I'm like, well, I tell that story, and that gives you a sense of okay, why is this team kind of in a in a bit of a rut here? And it's a good explanation, I think. And I just gave that explanation. So, you know, I think it has to relate to the overall picture of, of what's going on for the team. <clears throat> Excuse me. And if it's an individual, um, I'm thinking of like Christian Vital for UConn and Hoop. Like him and Dan Hurley had some. It, they bumped heads. They knocked heads a lot about the way he, you know, played the game. Uh, sometimes selfishly, sometimes taking bad shots, whatever. So I'd be at a practice. I'd see what was going on. I'd see there'd be extended conversations. Then I'd see the next game, and Vital would be more, you know. Uh, sensible with his with his floor game right so i'd ask Hurley about that before the game he would say to something to the extent of well listen uh, i told him he's killing he's killing us taking these shots you know he's taking shots that are way out of the format of what we're trying to do and it's not helping us and he's not a great creator of his own shot so you know whereas the fan sees the surface stuff well the two were bumping heads about something and he's not happy with them I can give him a little, another level of that, right? I can tell him, okay, this is exactly what Dan Hurley's telling his player. And that's a good explanation for why the guy made an adjustment, the player, and then became got back in the good graces of the coaching staff, right? So that's the kind of stuff, <clears throat> if you use it right, it gives the fan base a, an explanation of what exactly is going on with this team or that player or the coach and his team. Uh, I think that that's interesting to fans. I think they like that. All right, that's Mike Crispino joining us here on Play by Playcast. As he mentioned, you can find him on social media at Mike Crispino NYK. At Mike Crispino NYK uh, is his uh, Twitter handle, play by play voice of UConn. Football, basketball, baseball um, has done. ESPN work still does. Uh, he mentioned the Showtime Boxing, Golf Channel, Big Ten, Pac 12. Uh, did a lot of Pac 12 stuff last year. Liberty. A lot of stuff. Mike Crispino has been 
to a lot of places for a lot of people. Uh, it's been a career well-lived and one that continues to be so uh, now with iHeartMedia and the Connecticut Huskies. That'll do it for us this week. We're on a uh, seven-day break. Talk to you next Friday, right back here on PXP Cast. The music is Marshmallow. My name's Joel Gadette. Many thanks to Mike Crispino. We are out. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.